Welcome back to the podcast. Before we get into today's episode, just to remind you that you can go to my website, andyramage.com. There's lots of free resources on there for you to download, including my whole 10x journaling system. If you're into journaling or new to journaling, go and check it out. Also, a little workshop, Seven Steps to Quit Alcohol, for those that are interested in that type of thing. And also, if you want to come and train with me as a coach, we've just recently started another cohort of coaches, which I love. It's what I do best. It's a six-month adventure of self-development, of learning, and out the other side of it, you have this incredible super skill in the modern world, which it really is that to coach others. You can leverage all of your experience in your existing career or life to do good, to give back. And that's, I think, what we're all seeking, to do meaningful work that really could fuel you with energy like it has done for me for the rest of your life. Something I'm really impassioned by. It's something that's very important to me. I want to share with as many people as possible. So if you're also interested in that, please do go to my website, andyramage.com. There's a free workshop about coaching on there. You can also go to the main website, which is arateywaycoach.com, A-R-E-T-E, waycoach.com. Alrighty, so on today's show, we have the incredible Nzinga Harrison, who's a fabulous lady. We got on so well. She's got so much beautiful wisdom to share in and around behavioral change. And that could be behavioral change around exercise or going alcohol-free. She is a powerful lady that has so many wonderful insights and stories and wisdom to share. I think you're going to love this episode. Let's do this. Inzinga, this is lovely. I think we're gonna have a great conversation. We were just, we kicked off before uh, we pressed the record button, but there, we have so much I think in common, you're doing beautiful work in the space, which I'm so passionate about. It's dear to my heart. Addiction, alcohol-free, predominantly, as I mentioned, my focus is always on the middle lane in prevention in many ways. But as we started to discuss, and I think it's a great place to begin once people get to know a bit about your story, is that all of the skills and tools and techniques that I've learned over the years have come from the, let's just say, the dependent end, the addicted end. And then they're the uh -huh. same tools uh -huh. that you end up, you can just drop into the middle lane because it's it's sort of the early stages of the same thing, if you know what I mean. So I thought right. even if we sort of begin in there and then get a bit of your backstory into it, uh, which would be great as well. Yeah, I love this focus on the middle lane. And so you'll hear a lot when I talk about alcohol use disorders. Um, one, it's a spectrum. We have this concept that like a person with alcoholism um, has lost their family, lost their job, is homeless, is drinking out of a paper bag. But like every other condition, it's on a spectrum, right? So there's mild, moderate, severe. And so this middle lane that you're talking about, maybe it's like mild, moderate, where we have a huge opportunity to prevent folks from getting to severe. So I think about it like um, breast cancer. The reason we ask women to do a monthly breast exam is so we can catch breast cancer before it's stage four metastatic, right? Like we wanna catch it yeah. in the first lane really, but definitely in the middle lane. And so you're exactly right. All of the things that you learn from, we'll call it stage four, apply to the middle lane in a way that can help you avoid getting to stage four. Yes, see, this is what I love. This is exactly where I want to go with this conversation because I think the middle lane, when you look at it, that mild to moderate, as you described, 
is hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. It's, it's not, it's the big group, isn't it? Whereas the, the, let's just say yeah. the obviously yeah. addicted dependent end have already woken up to the fact that they've got an issue with their substance of choice. They're fully aware of it. The group in the middle, on the whole, are completely unaware very often that their relationship with a certain substance or alcohol, alcohol especially because it's a legalized drug, so people yeah. don't seem to notice it as much. And then they're getting all these knock-on consequences and wondering why. And very often the last thing they look at is, is alcohol. So I think these conversations are great just to be had in these early stages. So in, in your expertise, and you've got a brilliant book, which we'll come to later as well, Unaddicted, which I'm absolutely loving at the moment. But in your expertise with that middle lane in focus, what are some of the, the things that we can do to almost wake people up a little bit and give them some tools and techniques? Yeah, so I love like super easy things. The first thing I hear so much from people, their friends, their parents, their spouses that say like, is this a problem or am I just overreacting? And so I always tell people, if you ever even just ask the question, is it, this is the time for prevention. And so I love this really simple tool. You'll, um, you'll see it if you haven't gotten to that part of the book yet, but it's called the cage, C-A-G-E. And to what you said earlier, if we look at the spectrum of um, alcohol use, severe alcohol use disorder, which we used to call dependence, is only probably about 10 to 15% of people. So you're right, the remaining 85%, ask yourself these four questions. Number one, C, is, is this going to be audio only or we'll have video too? I'm like doing we'll have justice. video as well. So the C is good. We can, we can see the C. C. And Zynga's making a C right now. <laughs> have you ever thought to yourself, even for a split second, maybe I should cut back? C, cut back. A, have you ever, have you ever been annoyed? when somebody else mentioned your drinking pattern to you? G, I don't know, that one was too hard. That's good, that's good, I like the G. Guilty? That was good. Have you felt guilty? So you said like, I'm only gonna drink this much and then you drink more, or I'm not gonna drunk, drink at this party and then you drunk at this party, or I'm not gonna drink before I go to work and then you drunk before you go to work. Have you ever felt guilty? That's the G. And then E is eye opener. Have you ever had to drink first thing in the morning when you opened your eyes to steady yourself or help yourself get through the day? So C, have you ever thought about cutting back? A, have you ever been annoyed by somebody mentioning it? G, have you ever felt guilty? And E, have you needed an eye opener? If you answer yes to only one of these four questions, 77% of the time, you meet diagnostic criteria for an alcohol use disorder, mild or moderate. We have wow. a chance to get you while you're in that middle lane. And even if you're in the 23% who don't meet diagnostic criteria, you're walking towards diagnostic criteria. So you're in the first lane and we have a huge opportunity to prevent you from even getting to the middle lane. And this is wonderful. And, and that's a really simple acronym that I like. And I, and I read that in the book and it hit home straight away. So for me, I wouldn't have been on four, but I definitely would have been in that 
early stage of starting to think about, you know, uh, the sea, you know, starting to, to question my relationship with alcohol and definitely uh, the G as well, that guilt of, you know, certain things were happening that I was really unsure about that definitely started to wake me up in that stage of, of prevention. And for me at that time, winding back 10 years, there wasn't a lot available to me. And that was one of my inspirations around starting all of these movements because it felt like it was very much, there was only one type of service for you, which might have been traditional 12-step or AA, for example. And I wasn't yeah. in that place. And what's been wonderful, and I love about your work as well, is that we've been able to sort of stretch this thing apart now, haven't we? And we've created yeah. lots more lovely groups and podcasts and wonderful books for people in the middle lane to go, oh, that's that's still me. Whereas before, where it was so yeah. like one or the other, the middle lane people, I think, mm -hmm. were just waiting constantly till they ended up, you know, in, I'm doing hand signals now. We're both doing hand signals. We need to be watching this on that's YouTube right. as well. But you need to be one <laughs> or the other. And and I think that's that's really, that was really awakening for me, that, that uh, CAGE uh, acronym, because if just one of those is triggered, I think it's time to really reflect and, and review your relationship with alcohol. So let's let's say someone's there and they're like, oh, I'm just, they're, they're in the C part, right? They're just suddenly a bit uncomfortable. What happens then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so we think about this. I try not to get too um, like doctory, but sometimes I have to get doctory. So stay yeah. with me. We think about these stages of change for any behavioral change that any human being is going to make. So this goes for exercising more, eating less, taking a walk, hanging out with your kids, drinking alcohol, whatever the behavioral changes, this applies. And there are like five stages. And so the first stage is pre-contemplation. That means I am not even contemplating making a change. So Andy, what we just tried to do was talk to those people who are having some negative consequences from alcohol, but they're in pre-contemplation. They were not even thinking about it. We're like, do the cage because we just want you to think about it, right? And once a person starts thinking about it, then they're in contemplation. They're contemplating like, hmm, maybe I wanna change the way I'm drinking. When a person is in contemplation, what you're trying to do is help them make the decision to change their drinking pattern. And so this is what you were talking about there is really nothing for people in this middle lane. It's just like, you have to raise your hand and say, I'm an alcoholic and I vow to never drink ever again and go to AA or there's nothing for you. In this group, one year, no beer, dry January, damp January, right? Like, it's just like, make it easy and take away the stigma, make it safe. Give people a community of other people that are experiencing the same thing. So they can say, you know what? I'm just gonna try it. I don't have to make a lifetime commitment. Like, I don't have to, I don't have to marry this guy after our first date, right? Like, I'm just gonna yeah. go out on a date. Yeah. And then you just help people recognize like what negative consequences do you think might be from the alcohol? You don't even have to say they definitely are. And like, let's just try something different and see if that gets better. Then they make the decision. And then they're in preparation and that's like helping people actually try something. And then you're in action, you change your drinking 
and then you're in maintenance. You are 10 years now. The new habits replace that old habit. And so it's really about being able to get to folks who are in contemplation and preparation and make it cool, make it safe, make it easy, give a community, like, let's just try it. I love it. Do you know what? I'm loving Dr. Inzinga. I'm liking the doctor in you. This is good. And you know why? I've spent all weekend talking about the stages of change model. James Petraska's stages of change model. Yes, Petraska and De Clementi. Yes. It's a beautiful model. And what is wonderful about that? And let's stay with it. Let's stay in in Zynga doctor mode because I'm liking it a lot. (laughs) And I think where we do a lot of our work is in that pre-contemplation to contemplation stage isn't it as well that, that's where very much I see myself almost tapping people on the shoulder to say have you thought about this have you thought about the reason yes. that maybe your relationship's a bit strained have you thought about the reason you're inconsistent in your exercise or your nutrition or you feel yes. that, that anxiety it might be that it's the alcohol thing because up until that point they've mm-hmm. had no conscious awareness of it just a bit like you know and, and I liken it to myself I go back 12 years ago I had no conscious size in pre-contemplation, mm-hmm. even though I was getting a lot of mm-hmm. the side effects from drinking alcohol, my, my brain hadn't right. consciously computed that it had anything to do with alcohol. I just thought that I was a bit overweight, I was suffering from anxiety, mm-hmm. low mood. I just thought mm-hmm. a lot of that was sort of middle age, you know, and being in a busy, stressful career. I had no idea yeah. any of it was linked to alcohol and only through more luck yeah. than judgment sort of woke up you know, into that cage model again, that early stages of, I wonder, is it alcohol? I was just interested. I had no one to to give me any clues. Only by removing it myself for for 28 days, I was like, oh, I think it is bloody alcohol. You know, so I think Uh for us, our work is this wonderful bit in all those stages, but I think a lot of our work is in pre-contemplation, into contemplation. And something else that I wanted to to talk to you while we're in stages of uh, change uh, mode like so dry jan and you mentioned it there you know when you look at stages of change mode sometimes and i think this can have the opposite effect of what it's trying to achieve people try and jump stages so they're not really into it but they go i'm sort of i don't think i should stop drinking even though they're a middle lane drinker but it's dry jan so i'm going to try to do it anyway so they jump to action and then they bounce out of it quickly uh-huh. and then they have almost the opposite uh-huh. effect of, oh, maybe I'm a bit broken. Maybe I've done something wrong because actually they haven't done proper contemplation or preparation. I don't know if you feel the same. You know, it's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I do think it's true. Um, but it's OK, like jump the stage, right? What we have to do when people jump the stage is if they... Um, start drinking to the previous pattern or if they decide that not drinking is not for them we have to like be able to let them do that without judgment and so there's this really important concept on these stages of change which is called spiraling up yeah i love it as opposed to when we think about spiraling we think about spiraling down or spiraling out of control and so there's this idea about spiraling up so okay you jump to action And then your behavior relapses back to pre-contemplation. But the next time you come out of pre-contemplation, you're going to come out of it a different way because you've spiraled up just a little bit. And maybe you jump and then maybe you relapse back, but maybe that relapse will be back to preparation because you've spiraled up. 
just a little bit. So every little taste of action matters. Yeah, love this. And yeah, or a corkscrew, same thing. It's that, you know, you might corkscrew, because yes. lots of people, I think when they, 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 any behavioral change, again, that could be around sugar, it could be around alcohol, it could be around other substances. I think there's a tendency to fall into that trap. If it doesn't go to plan, then I fouled, you know, and I'm broken, I've done That's something right. wrong. And it's sort of snakes and ladders all the way back down to zero. Or if they've been keeping a streak counter, oh, I fouled you know, back to zero, right. where actually my approach is the opposite. Right. And having seen the stages of change model and understanding that corkscrew of change, and even if you look at Petraska's research with smokers, he found that it takes four or five times for the average person to go around yeah. that loop of change, doesn't it? So I think what that inherently tells us, which was a revelation to me, that actually slip-ups, errors, departures from the wagon, whatever you want to call them, are actually for most people a necessary part of this corkscrew yeah. of, of change, which for me, I think is really important messaging because what I've found, and I don't know if you've found the same, but when I was in the early days of, of being involved in this space and coaching with people and working with people, very often I didn't do that bit because I was scared. It was like, you know, Harry Potter, Voldemort, he who shall not be named. Yeah. So I was like, I can't mention slip ups or departures from the wagon because if I do, I'm almost giving people license or that's what I thought in my, my own way. But then what I found is they would, they would slip, feel ashamed, feel embarrassed, felt they'd let me down and then disappear and not come back. Yep. Whereas when we started yep. to really get out in the open and say, actually for most people, the, the, the slip bit isn't a necessary part of your change. People would still go through that process, feel upset, but then they'd come back and they'd get the opportunity to corkscrew of change. Have you, have you, did you notice something similar? 100%. So I love the way you describe that because it's really when we make that seem like it's a shameful event that only happened to you, that kicks people out on an island and doesn't let them open up for the support that they need when that happens. And so when it's like, oh, hey, listen, I have definitely been there, not just on this behavioral change, but on all the rest of them also, because this is part of being human, right? And you take that shame away, then you allow people to reach out. Um, and then it, it's really like, okay, so the slip up happened. Let's get curious about it. What was it about the decisions you made? What was it about what was going on in your life? What was it about, you know, feeling to need to be connected to somebody like let's figure out what it was and then let's try to tweak one three and let's go around this corkscrew again right but the idea is like just keep going around the corkscrew you're spiraling yeah. up this is it this is perfect this is exactly what i like to hear because it's the same view that i have that actually a lot of the time yeah. that's just part it's just a natural part of the process the key is to stay in it keep learning keep iterating around then eventually you get it into the place that you need to get it into and then in terms of someone that's listening to this and they're going on this adventure with us and they're iterating around and, and i know you, you you touch on this in the book as well what about those that you know find something that gabo matai gabo matty talks about this doesn't he not why the problem why the pain you know sometimes there's yes. something underneath that's driving the behavior that when the behavior stops, suddenly that's 
reveal. Do you have any sort of advice in and around that as well? Totally, 100%. I was actually, this is so interesting, just talking to my um, 11-year-old niece yesterday. So we had the Atlanta book launch party yesterday. It was incredible. There was a Q&A. And she asked a question about one of her classmates, 11 years old, who is already vaping. And I said, wow. any kid at 11 years old who is already using drugs, to Gabramate's point, has some pain so deep already and not the adults who know how to help them kind of navigate that pain. And so I think of it like um, nails in a tire. The teaching has always been like, just stop doing the drug, just stop drinking alcohol. It's the entire problem. And if you just stop that, everything will be fine. You, a lot of times alcohol is the last nail in the tire because it helped until it didn't, right? And so you can take that alcohol nail out of the tire, but if you have childhood trauma and adult trauma and lack of a support system and environmental pressures, you can put as much air in your tire and it's gonna keep leaking out because there are still nails. And so as painful, if you think about that tire as your body, as painful as, that, as it is to pull a nail out, you have to do that so you can patch that hole or else air is going to keep looking. It's going to keep driving you back to the alcohol. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to describe it. And it's so true, isn't it? Because there is always that balancing act. You know, some people would argue, I need it as my crutch in many ways to help me deal with a given situation mm -hmm. or problem. But equally, without removing alcohol, it's, it's so hard to actually get to the underlying whatever that might be. And that might that's require right. talk therapy. It might require couples counseling it might require medication yeah. but you'll sort of almost never know and I think especially with alcohol because that is the, you know the sort of topic that that I, I love to talk about it does have all those knock-on consequences so I'll often find lots of people that I've been around or coached that have been suffering from anxiety and a depression of sort mm -hmm. which they assumed mm -hmm. was you know generic mental health issues be it anxiety mm -hmm. be it mm -hmm. depression removed alcohol and discovered that it's completely gone. And, actually, and, and, and I put myself yeah. in that bracket, in truth. It, it never came back. And of course, it's not a, a panacea for any you know, mental health issue, far from it, right? But equally, there's probably a lot of people right now that are suffering mentally, physically, due to actually their relationship with alcohol. So they're never gonna know until you remove it. And it might be, you remove it and it's still there. But at least then you've, you know, you've taken out one of the factors and therefore you can get into something that might be talk therapy or, you know, I, I think that's really important too. Yeah, 100%. It becomes chicken and egg, right? And so like falling back into doctor mode again, we use this process of elimination when I'm, when we're first meeting each other and you're telling me about your story and your experiences and I'm trying to think about you from a diagnostic perspective then um, let's say we're dealing with anxiety and you're also drinking at a level that is causing ne negative consequences. Then I'm looking, was there anxiety before you ever took the first drink? Yeah. Have you ever had a period of one month or longer not drinking and you still had anxiety, right? Because what I'm looking for initially alcohol treats anxiety, right? Like that's why people drink at the party because it loosens you up and makes it easier to socialize. 
And then alcohol, literally that same night becomes the source of anxiety when your alcohol yeah. level falls to zero and it causes that anxiety rebound. And then as you're drinking regularly, it actually becomes the front door engine that is actually driving anxiety. And so like, I will have people that will say, I remember being anxious at five years old in elementary school. And I'm yeah. like, okay, this anxiety predated alcohol. I'm probably dealing with alcohol use disorder and anxiety disorder. I have people that say, I don't ever remember being anxious until I was in my twenties. I'm like, okay, this is alcohol induced anxiety until proven otherwise. And the way we prove otherwise is at the very least a month of complete abstinence from alcohol and see what happens to the anxiety. Yeah. And this is, this is the key bit for me. And maybe we'll start to talk about this now a little bit as well. The sort of lack of awareness. Uh, and what I mean by that is not only from the individuals with alcohol uh, and we'll stay on the alcohol topic, but even from the medical profession, for example, obviously you're highly skilled. Oh, you yes. understand this area. But for me, if I was reporting to my standard, you know, GP, like, and I know this because I, I speak to so many people. If I went in there and said something about anxiety or depression, the, the alcohol conversation is never, ever coming up. It's just, just not even a conversation that comes up yet. From what we know, know, if that conversation, like you just described brilliantly there, was it pre-alcohol or was it, all right, well, the first thing I think, why not take a break from alcohol for 28 days and then come back and let's see what's left. That's right. And this is, so why do you, why do you think that's not happening? Oh, I have two reasons why this is not happening. One now it is changing, but, um, for people of doctors of my generation, we were not taught about addiction, alcohol use, substance use, none of it in medical school. We were talking about smoking cessation. That was it. Right. And so your doctors literally didn't have this as part of their education. One, number two, it's like stigma. Your doctor doesn't know how to have this conversation. And so they don't want you to think they think something about you, like you might have alcoholism, right? Like it's a mess. It's a mess. And so the more we can train doctors to have this conversation in a non-judgmental way, train doctors to make it safe for people to tell us how much they're really drinking and how often they're really drinking. And so part of that is just like asking everybody, just ask everybody, no matter what need they come to the doctor with, do a cage and have a conversation around the cage, right? So like, that's, that's one of my big missions in life is just to teach doctors how to have this conversation. And in the book, I don't know if you got to that part yet, there's actually a script and it says like, your doctor might not know how to do this, but if you have a doctor who is compassionate and practicing good medicine, they will learn to go out and do this. Here's a script for how to start the conversation with your doctor. That is absolutely brilliant because that for me, you know, I'm on this mission as well to transform the world's relationship with alcohol. It really begins in those places, doesn't it? It really is that, that, that shift, whether it be our GP, that the foundational conversation that lives in like any conversation, because at the root cause, you could argue there's a chance that alcohol has a role to play in pretty much everything you know if someone reports low mood or anxiety or actually reports that they're unhappy in their relationship there's a high chance 
that the, their relationship with alcohol on that spectrum of middle lane, whatever it looks like, has an influence on that. Therefore, it's almost, it's, the, it's like part of the starting point of everything. And once yeah. there's some understanding around that, it could make a difference to relationship or a mental health or a physical. For example, if you went to the, the gym to work with your personal trainer, the, the first question or in the foundational questions I want to ask is, what's your relationship like with alcohol? Because then you're going to get an idea of, you know, are they going to be consistent in their training? 100%, because one, think about just how common alcohol is. It is a very foundational part of the fabric of our cultures, right? And so the chance is this person drinks alcohol in some quantity. That's just statistically probable. And so then if I ask the question and I make the recommendation, Hey, how about we just try a month, no alcohol and see if you feel better. If that generates any sense of fear in like the fear of not drinking for a month, what that would mean. If that generates any sense of grief, like the grief of losing alcohol for a month, what would that mean? If, if that generates any emotion other than like, oh yeah, okay, I can try it. Then the alcohol is meaningfully contributing, right? Like if alcohol holds any meaning in your life, such that thinking about going without it for a month causes any kind of struggle, we need to think about going without it for a month. Well, this is brilliant because before I came on and I was thinking about that myself, talking to you about the middle lane, uh, there's a lovely quote that I always come back to from Warren Buffett. It's about economics, but, but I spin it into lots of different things. And the quote is this, it's okay. not until the tide goes out that you find out who's been swimming without any trunks. And I think that <laughs> sort of question a great is a little bit like that, isn't it? Because we've got this huge group in the middle lane that are like, well, I'm not over there, so I'm okay, because I'm not in that end. Yeah, if you mm -hmm. said to that huge mm -hmm. group in the middle lane, the hundreds of millions, all right, brilliant, take a break for a month. I could imagine that's that moment where the tide goes out and you'll find out who's swimming without any trunks. Right. Many of them will be like, what do you mean? Take, you know, well, we know what that, that it would be a visceral reaction to it of, well, no, yes. I can't do that. And that in itself has to be so revealing, doesn't it? That has to say yes. so much. It's only the ones that can really go, yeah, no problem. Of course I can. And I think if you're in that place of alcohol, it's not a factor in your life. But I would argue the vast majority of that middle lane would, yes. would that would cause a, a like a, a visceral reaction to them wouldn't it which i think says so much yeah yeah and 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 you get that visceral reaction for a lot of different reasons and so you know one of the things that we um help people navigate is like yeah i can quit whenever i want and it's like okay so let's quit and then it's like well i don't want to that's important, right? But usually be beneath that, I don't want to, is some fear, is some grief, is some like, I'm, I'm worried I can't actually. That could be for different reasons. Like maybe everybody goes to happy hour after your job and you think if you stop drinking, everybody's gonna think you're a weirdo. Maybe you have no idea how you're gonna get to sleep at night if you don't take that drink. Maybe you have no idea how you're going to deal with stress if you don't take that drink, right? Like it can be a lot of yeah. different things, but if you can't just be like, oh yeah, great, let's do it. 
then that's an opportunity to get curious. Yeah, and I think back to your point as well, that is the, the stages of change, isn't it? That's going from that pre-contemplation into contemplation of, oh, that's yep. interesting. Like what's coming up for me there yep. is I'm really fearful that I can't go to happy hour because I'm gonna I'm not gonna be part of the gang anymore. And if I'm not yep. drinking beer with the lads or whatever the setup is, I'm gonna be thrown out the tribe and I don't want to be thrown out the tribe. But that and again, that's where you come in and I come in and all these wonderful groups and books come in because then we can be the ones like, well, actually, we've all been through that process. And you might find that by taking a break mm-hmm. or showing up and drinking alcohol free alternatives, you have an even better night. And then you're even better at your job and you feel great the next day and you can drive home, you know. So I think that's where a lot of the wonderful work we're doing comes in when people are getting that that tug that that can be dealt with relatively straightforwardly because very often that's just a limiting belief those type of things that can be overcome of course if there's something more more deeper that needs to be dealt with that's a different story but a lot of these are just the limiting beliefs that people have um so what i did want to do if there's a cat i I wanted to come back to the book oh sorry okay we're going to come back to the book i love that you mentioned alcohol free alternatives so yesterday i mentioned my sister threw me this beautiful um book launch party here in Atlanta where we live and the entire party was alcohol free but we had beer wine cocktails so we had Heineken zero zero alcohol free Heineken we had alcohol free Coronas we had alcohol free Rosé Chardonnay and um Merlot we had cocktails everything was alcohol free and people were shocked. They had no idea that it existed. And so it really was also like a tasting party. People were were non-alcohol binging. It was like amazing, right? They're like, I'm gonna try this, yeah. I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try this. And we were like, you can literally drink as much as humanly possible and you will leave here sober and you will have no hangover tomorrow. And it was so cool. That is so cool to hear. And yeah, I've, I've been really involved in, I guess, the alcohol-free movement. It's a big part of, uh, you know, what I do. I really encourage it. And actually on the podcast uh, just recently was a guy called Bill Schufelt. Bill Schufelt is the, is the founder of Athletic Brewing, which is huge in oh. the States now. And, and that is just a purely alcohol-free drinks brand that he started five yes. and a half years ago. No one really got it. They laughed at him, said it's never going to work. You know, and that is probably a billion-dollar business now. That's how big that business is. He's wow. up there with like the titans of the industry and it's a pure alcohol-free drinks brand. Bill doesn't drink. That's what motivated him to do it. And to see uh-huh. that, I think like you, you touched on that right at the start, it's changing. The momentum's building in many ways, yes. but there's so much work still to be done. There's so much work, isn't there, in that consciousness raising of moving people from pre-contemplation yes. into contemplation, which I think is really exciting. And again, to, to segue into the book, that's where like the beautiful book that you've created, I think really starts to help with that process. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the book for those people listening. Yeah. So the name of the book is Unaddiction: six mind changing conversations that could save a life. Um, and so thank you, Andy, because like, these are the conversations, this conversation yeah. that we're having right now are like the conversations um, that I'm trying to make safe in the book. And so the book, we made up the word on addiction. So it's like, unlearn what we think we know. So we were talking about that, right? Like alcohol, yeah. there's a middle lane. So unlearn the idea that there's only stage four alcohol use disorder. 
undo the stigma that's killing people. And so we were talking about that, right? Like make it, create a community where it is cool to not drink, where you don't get ostracized for decreasing alcohol for alcohol-free drinks, like just make that cool and then um, uncover the conversations we could have that could be saving lives. And so I really, too, too earlier in the pod when I was like, I try not to get too doctory. This is not a doctory book. Andy, back me yeah. up if you're reading it. It's, it's great. Try it's... to just have it be conversational and let everybody see themselves in this book, whether you've had your own experience with addiction or not. Like, I just think everybody, I hope, can see themselves in this book and then we can talk. Yeah, exactly. And that's, for me, what, what's great about it. As you say, you've got the, the doctor in you, which is great for credibility and it's an important part of it. But actually, the book is very conversational. And that's the, that's the premise of the whole book, isn't it? To get out there and have these conversations and break down the stigma. Yeah that's been attached to many of these different substances and alcohol in particular for too long, really start to stretch this whole, you know, like middle lane and realize that actually we're all on that gradient somewhere. You know, we might not be showing those classic signs, but most likely what we just discussed, I would argue most people listening to this, if you said to them, take a break for 28 days, would probably <gasps> would gasp at the thought of it. Yeah. And that's got to be interesting. You know, yeah. again, I get curious I think that was a really lovely yes. thing that you said, and it comes up a lot in the book that just get be curious about this. It doesn't have to be a you've been a naughty boy or a naughty girl and someone's gonna mm -hmm. take your toys away. It's like that's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that my relationship yeah, with alcohol has made me feel that way. What's going on there? How can I explore that? Or can I get, you know, into a group or work with someone like yourself? They, these these conversations are just brilliant. And and then in terms of the book and those those bigger conversations. Which ones do you think are most important or they all carry the same weight? Yeah, I think um, it varies for each individual which yeah. of those conversations is more important. And so we have a conversation with yourself. We have a conversation with your doctor. And when I say we have a conversation, I mean like there's actually a script for how to have this conversation in the book, right? We have a conversation with your children elementary, middle, high school, and adult age, all four, we have a conversation with your friends. And so for each person, how to have, which of those conversations is most important for you to feel comfortable having varies based on your life experiences. So like, while this is a conversational book, I do hope that doctors and other healthcare providers will read it. And so for them, I'm pointing out the conversation with your doctor as hugely important for my yeah. friend who's worried about her kids. I'm pointing out the conversation with your kids as hugely important for my friend who's worried about himself. I'm pointing out the conversation with yourself as hugely important. So that will vary, but I think all of the conversations are important for all of us. Yeah. And just to pick up on that point, that's what I've loved about the ethos of the book it is about talking. So a lot of what I do is coaching and training coaches. And I think that's where it gets its power, isn't it? That when we can get in a room or with a group or an individual and just actually talk about what's often inside our, our head. And I think very often where a lot of this comes from is that it gets buried. It gets stigmatized so people don't say anything. They're that's embarrassed. They're ashamed. They don't want to raise the conversation with their doctor because they don't want an, like a black mark on their you know, insurance, whatever it right. might be. So too many people 
you know, sweep it under the carpet and then it manifests at a later date when it's too obvious and then you can't deny yep. the fact that it's causing a problem. But there was all those potential moments for a great conversation along the mm-hmm. way that might have stopped that in their tracks. And I think that's why what we're doing here today, your great book, like these things are so important. And I think that's been the big shift in the last five or 10 years that we're starting to have these conversations much earlier on now. And I think some of that stigma, again, we've got a long way to go with it. And on that note, where do you see like the future going? You know, now we're building some momentum in this space. How do you see alcohol playing out, you know, our relationship with it in the next five, 10 years? Yeah, so there is a cultural revolution going on right now. We talk about this in the book too, The Power of Culture. Um, The young people, so I'm talking about the millennials and the Gen Zs, they are thinking about alcohol way differently than we thought about it. They're like, why? Right? Like, it's expensive. I see these problems. I can hang out with my friends without it. Like, it'll be fine. Um, And so I think, like you said, the the rise of the low alcohol, low no alcohol movement. And so I'm super encouraged by this. I also just think culturally, we are opening ourselves to talk about so many things that stigma forced into the dark. And so what I hope will happen is that as young, like I said, I put a script in this book for elementary school conversation. Like, I hope this becomes part of prevention that we are practicing from elementary school, teaching our little kids how to recognize their emotions, how to manage their emotions, mindfulness, how to have a coping skill that is not drug use. And part of that will be that the adults around them are using coping skills that are not alcohol right? And they're using coping skills that they see differently. And so I mentioned my niece asked that question about her friend. And I said, you know, your friend is dealing with something very painful. I don't know what it is, but the number one thing is to just approach him with compassion rather than a wagging finger about what he should do. And she said, yeah, his mom died last year. So I was like, that's it. He's 11. His mom died. He has no idea how to navigate that. And the adults in his life don't know how to navigate their grief and help him navigate his grief. And so like what I hope is we're getting to the point where we can recognize that at the absolute earliest point for our young kiddos. And then that changes the whole next generation. Yeah, that is so beautiful. That's that's powerful. And, you know, we have a shared mission, I think, to change the narrative around like all of these different behaviors in many ways and mine's in particular around alcohol and I think that's really my objective over the next five to ten years is to try and just raise the awareness and and like you say it it begins and it's it's changing I see that shift I've got a 16 year old daughter 18 year old daughter alcohol's just not it's just not on their radar like it was for me at 13 you know it was all about alcohol from the age of 13 it's just it's not a thing for them at the moment. And I'm sure it will be at some point in their life, but it's just not a thing. And I'm seeing that cultural shift, but we've got this huge, like mass of people from probably 30 to 80 in truth that are really stuck in those old behaviors. They haven't got necessarily that awareness that I really want to try and just tap on the shoulder over the next, next few years. So if you were me, what advice would you have for me to try and again, help raise that consciousness as best I can? 
Yeah, one, I think you're doing an absolutely beautiful job. And my first strategy is always what you are already doing, which is like, use yourself, use your own experiences, right? Because if people can connect to you and they can see themselves in your own experiences, that makes it safer for them to get curious about their experience. And then the other thing um, that I always try to do, like sometimes just the word alcohol is too dangerous. Like people close their ears immediately. And so you, and I started doing it earlier um, in our conversation when we're like, and sometimes it's about cake and sometimes it's about riding my bike. And sometimes it's about, right? Like the more we can also get to those lesser stigmatized behaviors that we still need a tap on the shoulder (laughs) about, then sometimes it can kind of like soften the ground to then let the word alcohol be able to be heard. Yeah, that is beautiful. Zinga, you've been absolutely marvelous. I've loved this conversation. We'll we'll do it again. There's loads of other things I've got going on that I've talked about uh, uh, you about off air, but um, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Just so everyone knows, where can they find out more about you? The book is Unaddicted. On, you can get it online and all major bookstores, I'm sure. Where else can people find out a bit more about you? Yeah, thank you so much. So um, I have my website, Nzinga Harrison MD. I'm on all social platforms. That's Nzinga MD, N-Z-I-N-G-A-M-D, like medical doctor. So on Instagram, Threads, Facebook. LinkedIn. um, And then I co-founded a company called Eleanor Health. um, And we have tons of education um, and insights on our website. So eleanorhealth.com. Love it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me and we'll do this again soon. Thanks, Andy. Hopefully you enjoyed today's episode, which was brought to you by aratewaycoach.com, which is my coach training initiative that I've created. It's what I do best. It's where I spend most of my time and most of my energy training the next wave of incredible executive coaches, life coaches, alcohol-free performance coaches, really to leverage your life experience and your work experience to do good in the world, to show up and add value, to come on this adventure of meaningful work with myself, where I'll teach you everything that I've learned over the last 12 years of coaching that's allowed me to escape the golden handcuffs of a big corporate career to do what I love and create podcasts and have wonderful conversations and to share them with people like yourself. So if you're interested, do go to aratewaycoach.com. You'll see lots of information there. Or go to my website, andyramage.com, where you can download a free workshop all about coaching and just check it out. And then let me know if you want to come and join with me in springtime to do something transformational, to invest in your future of personal development and a potential new incredible career. All right. Thank you for joining me today. I'll see you again soon.